So this is Josh Malden uh, from the Center of Theological Inquiry, and I'm here today in conversation with Devin Singh, who's an Associate Professor of Religion at Dartmouth College, and Ruth Brownstein, who's Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Connecticut, but who works in the area of religion in American public life, so sociolo sociologist working on questions of religion and politics. And maybe just start with Devin and, and then Ruthie as well to talk about the work you do in general and, uh, and how it might relate to economic questions. So broadly speaking, my work looks at uh, the connection conversation between religion in particular. I focus on the Christian tradition and, and Christian thought and theology in particular and ethical discussions and conversations within Christianity on one hand and its interface and response to an interaction with questions of, of economics, money, debt, um, inequality. And my, my first work uh, book looked at, looked at money and the ways that money has influenced Christian ideas of redemption, salvation, and even divine governance of the world. And it's shaped theological claims that Christians have made over the centuries. And uh, that sort of dovetailed and fed into this new project, which is looking at debt and both concepts and metaphors of debt and how those have shaped and influenced uh, scripture as well as Christian tradition, but also ethical and economic uh, or ethical responses to forms of economic debt as well. Um, and I'm very interested in the ways that debt uh, trades on uh, kind of ambiguities and vagueness in terms of what we actually mean when we speak in terms of debt. Do we actually mean economic debt? Do we mean some sort of vague sense of obligation of owing to one another in other ways, um, which I think is, you know, a big thing that's going to, that's coming up and it's going to come up in our current situation as well in terms of the kinds of um, forms of solidarity and obligation that we, we need to maintain right now. Um, but how that um, has fed into a broader culture of debt and given debt uh, uh, a far re far reaching influence in terms of financial institutions, but also our everyday lives. Um, a number of, social theorists and philosophers and just kind of observers have noted the ways that debt has come to shape uh, our existence in certainly in kind of finance capitalism and in, in the re most recent decades, even more uh, extremely. And so I'm interested in unpacking some of the roots of that and in particular how religious language and religious institutions and practices have contributed to that, have, have uh, given debt a certain kind of power and um, influence, but also, of course, the ways that they continue to resist and speak back to and challenge uh, the pervasiveness of debt. And so this gets into questions of debt cancellation and jubilee, um, ways that debt slavery has shaped understandings of, of wage labor and um, submission and obligation to, to political authorities. There's a variety of, of lines of inquiry that one can look at. So, but again, at the kind of higher level, broadly speaking, it's this interface between debt on one hand and notions of God, redemption, salvation on the other, and how they are mutually um, shaping and enforcing one another in, uh, in Western societies. Great, maybe Ruthie as well, kind of speak to your general work. Sure. Um, my work overall has always been interested in looking at how there are kind of varieties of forms of um, ideas and cultural practices that inform American political life. Um, and we can think about those as being varied along a political spectrum from left to right um, and trying to understand maybe what, what makes those ideas and practices different, similar, but also sort of constantly in contestation. Um, 
and also how religion has always informed American politics, whether we're looking at the right or the left and how um, in some moments historically we've, we've associated religion more with one side or the other, but that it, it's always present on both sides and every side um, at the level of ideas and practices, um, as well as more generally at the level of American political culture and the kinds of ideas and categories that um, sort of are shaping how politics play out in the background. Um, my last project was a, an ethnographic comparison of two activist groups, one on the right, um, the Tea Party movement, a local group associated with that movement, and a local, more progressive, social justice-oriented, faith-based community organizing coalition. Um, and through field work with both of those groups, I was able to really get at some questions about how activists across the political spectrum understand their work um, in the context of an often um, alienating and very unequal political process that they felt excluded ordinary citizens. Um, but then that how, despite those differences, they ended up kind of doing politics and activism quite differently, shaped by really different understandings of democracy, citizenship, and um, the role of religious pluralism in particular in American political life. Um, one of the things that I became really interested out of that project um, that's taken me much more centrally thinking about the role of money and the economy more generally was um, thinking about how those groups approach questions of economic inequality um, and particularly questions about taxes and for lack of a better word, sort of welfare state politics. Um, uh, particularly the Tea Party we associate with, with thinking about taxes. They were a movement that was originally organized around being an anti-tax movement, um, although they were much more than that. Um, and I ultimately decided that I needed to do an entire project that just looked at questions about how Americans understand and disagree about taxes. Um, and, and there's been a lot of work on that question for sure. But one of the things that, that often doesn't get asked is how the actual practice of tax paying becomes freighted with different kinds of moral meanings for Americans historically and contemporarily, how those meanings are always multiple um, at any given time, how it, you know, they can be, we can understand tax paying as something that is sacred that you know, defines us as citizens. This is something that we is especially visible during times of war, during moments like now, where, you know, the government sort of, we feel that we have to send the government resources. It's our duty as citizens um, to support a government in order to protect all of us. Um, but it's visible during other times as well. Um, and that in addition to moments like that, where tax paying is sacralized, we can also see moments where tax paying is considered profane or taboo and that happens you know on the fringes of political life among groups like very anti-statist kinds of groups like radical libertarians or anarchists or you know those are the ones we often think of um first um but also uh on groups on the left who are really concerned about the kinds of things that tax money is being spent on and so um my research now is exploring kind of the diversity of those ideas about tax paying, both sort of among most Americans, how, how that's happened um, at the center of our, of our political discourse, how we've thought and thought about tax paying and done, done tax paying, um, but also at those political fringes in an effort to 
see the tax paying in its multiplicity. So that just to step back a little bit, I think it's useful to think about, you know, what it means when we pay taxes as part of an incredibly diverse and highly polarized country like the United States. Essentially, we're paying money into a pot that is going to be used for lots and lots of purposes, for the most part. Some of those, some of those purposes are earmarked, and so we have a good sense that some money is going to some things. But generally, we pay lots of taxes, and then they are used to pay for lots of different things. And any given person probably doesn't agree with or feel excited about every single thing that their tax dollars mm-hmm. are going toward. Yeah. Um, that's just inevitable. Um, but ideally, right, we shouldn't, we, we probably all disagree on the things that we're against and disagree slightly on the things that we are for. And there is some sense of agreement that I'm going to get some things I want and I'm going to get, I'm not going to get other things mm-hmm. I want and no one is going to get everyone, everything that I want. And this is kind of part of what it means to live in a society, right? Um, and for most people, I think that that's how they approach it. Um, and they don't think too hard or too much about exactly how many of their dollars are going towards specific things that they're paying for with their taxes, um, right? It's just sort of something that they do once a year and they don't think much about. But some people think a lot about it. Um, and most of the people that think a lot about it are, are doing that because for one reason or another, they're morally disgusted or offended by something that their tax dollars are paying for. Um, There's not huge numbers of people that fall into this category, but in order to sort of spend that much time and energy thinking and focusing on on something, it requires sort of a a sense of moral shock or disgust. Mm -hmm. Um, And so two of the groups that have historically um, mobilized around these issues have been, as you know, people who are um, anti-war, who are for often religious reasons, um, disgusted by the idea that their their own dollars could be paying for a bullet or a gun or a, a soldier's salary that would result in killing. Um, those ideas have historically been um, championed by members of the, the peace churches, um, Quakers, Mennonites, Church of the Brethren members, um, but are also held by a, a broader set of people who are both religious and secular um, and pacifist for, for various reasons. Um, and then other, also uh, people who are anti-abortion. Um, and those are mostly uh, Christian conservatives for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the main differences between these two groups is that for a very long time, uh, abortion was not legal. And so people who were against abortion essentially didn't have to worry about the fact that their tax dollars were going to go toward paying for abortions. Um, And this was part of a broader sort of experience of living in a country whose laws largely reflected the moral values of one's own religious community, right? When one is the religious majority for a large part of a country's history, right? It's not actually even considered controversial that laws would reflect implicitly and explicitly Christian values. Um, And so part of what has changed in the past now 50 years um, is that there's been challenges to what we might think of as sort of Christian hegemony um, where law is concerned. Um, And one of the challenges is on issues around abortion. And so after Roe v. Wade made abortion legal, 
this caused a huge amount of concern um, um, among Christian taxpayers as they framed themselves, who now worried that their tax dollars were going to be used to support abortions. Um, and so there, I can go into more detail about kind of what it means to make a claim about sort of conscience through the vehicle of one's tax dollars, which is in itself kind of interesting and unique. Um, but, but both of these groups are doing it in very parallel ways, in ways that even members of the groups kind of recognize as parallel. Legislators have always recognized as parallel. Um, but as you know, the pacifist claims have largely not been accommodated um, or taken seriously as, you know, a, a true sort of place that the government could step in and accommodate them. Um, and the, and the pro-lifers have through, you know, mechanisms that since the late seventies have said that federal money, tax money cannot be used to fund abortions because this wouldn't, this wouldn't be fair to large numbers of Americans who are disgusted by this idea. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So I think it's just one of the many ways that we can see how, how people come to see tax paying as something that's, that's, really uh, attached to their own moral agency, um, attached to how they see themselves as moral individuals and how they try to create a society that reflects their moral values. I think on one hand, people hear that there are these groups that, that are really concerned about how their talk, tax dollars are spent. And they think of this as something that's somewhat radical, that, like, that seems kind of far-fetched. Um, but when you put it in relation to these other kinds of groups of people, right? There's lots of people who think about their money as a, as a medium of moral agency, right? As a way of enacting the kinds of moral values in the world that you want to enact and avoiding the kinds of immoral activities that you want to avoid. And so I've, I've actually been thinking through this in another paper, right? But how that underlying view of money does shape lots of things. It shapes ethical consumer movements, right? Around, I'm only going to buy organic food and support organic farmers or buy certain kinds of coffee, mm -hmm. right? That these now are incredibly popular movements or even, right? There's religious-based kind of movements that will only buy, you know, foods that are considered appropriate by their religious communities, right? Halal foods. Um, there are investment sort of mechanisms that say, I'm only going to invest in socially responsible businesses. Um, and so this is now widespread. This doesn't mean that everybody thinks about their money this way, but that large numbers of people do. Um, and that if you're inclined to think about your money this way, why can't we also think about how people think about their tax dollars that way? There are, of course, differences, but I, I think that there, there are differences that we can work through and see some continuity between those practices. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts here. I mean, Ruthie's project is is endlessly fascinating to me, um, and and so important. And I think a number of things that I that come to mind. One is that I think the practices that she is noting and observing in society, I think, belie they belie the myth of the neutrality of money, right? And it show that actually money is a moral medium, and that it places us in moral relationships, and that to use money is to participate in moral networks in some way. Um, and that's something that I think many people note implicitly and feel implicitly, which is gives rise to these kinds of movements and decisions. Um, but at the same time, and this is sort of an ongoing battle within the, the disciplines, that there's a, been a move, particularly in certain fields of economics, to try to emphasize the neutrality of money and talk about money as a neutral medium, which sociologically, historically, anthropologically is, is really difficult to actually observe and, and demonstrate. So, so it's, this is one I think, powerful illustration of that. Um, 
Another connection that I find really interesting. So in my research on money and on debt, I have spent some time looking at the ancient Near East and ancient Greece at these moments where we, we kind of watershed moments where something like the origins of money and debt occur, that we find monetary mechanisms emerging and debt mechanisms emerging in the ancient Near East in the 4,000s or to the 3,000s before the Common Era, um, and then formalized in the 2000s and, and, and the 1000s. What, what's interesting to me is that there's a historic connection, an apparent historic connection between taxes, tithing, and tribute. So all these three mechanisms overlap in some ways. And so, so taxes, of course, rendering some sort of standardized notion of um, a proportion of your resources to the government tithing as doing this to a divine figure in some way. And then tribute is typically in some situations of sovereignty and empire where you're offering gifts or money or resources, but it's not as standardized or as formalized as uh, taxation. And it might, might also be to a foreign power or to an occupying power. But we see money operating in all three of these things historically um, from, from very ancient times. And there is, you know, a, a one, at least one particularly influential theory of money in terms of where it comes from that is connected to the, at least to coinage, to, the, to an ancient Greek sacrificial system where offerings were made on behalf of the people to various deities and then monetary tokens were sort of disseminated as a way to sort of mark people's participation in these civic rituals of sacrifice that then could be offered back to the authority to pay, to, to, to pay off debts and to pay off a certain um, obligations. So there's a potential historic connection. And even again, there are debates about this, even if it's not, even if we can't prove it historically within the imagination, within our sort of cultural baggage, if you will, around money, money and sacrifice are very connected. And so this idea that Ruthie has, has noted about having a moral concern about the kinds of offerings we're giving to the government in, in the form of taxes is very much related to what we see emerging in religions in terms of what is, you know, what, what is the destination of our sacrifice. When we offer this, whether it's money, whether it's, it's you know, some sort of blood offering or food offering in terms of, you know, non-monetary societies, what's going to happen to this? Where is it going to go? What kind of influence is it going to have in the spiritual realm? What is God or what are the gods going to do with it? Uh, How is it going to potentially bless us or affect us in some way? There's this pattern that we see um, that's that's been with complex civilizations for for millennia. So this this case that Ruthie is is illuminating is really interesting within that kind of longer tradition of, of humans being concerned about what has become of their resources, but also how, it, how is it sort of interacting with authorities, whether those are political authorities, spiritual authorities, deities, governments, et cetera. And what, are, what, what then are the kind of implications for the human communities that are participating in those kinds of practices? So a, a number of really fascinating overlaps there that I see that I think are really, really interesting and, and perhaps are even part of the kind of historical memory of uh, religions within America as they draw on things like Christianity in particular with its notion of sacrifice and its notion of offering to, to God and to the church. Right. I think those are, that's gotta be there in the mix in the kind of static of people's minds and, and the anxieties as they're these sort of fraught decisions about um, what has become of our resources and what is the government going to do. And so, yeah, the, I think it's, there's a lot there. That's just super, super, I think important to, to illuminate. That's so helpful. And I think that I, we're going to have to talk a lot more about some of these issues. But um, one of the things that that I'm finding interesting and in trying to work out myself is that, right, in the, some of the examples that you gave, particularly uh, sort of the tribute, right, is that is that you kind of 
there's a specific thing that you're giving money over to and the, and you kind of have a, have a sense of what that money is being given to. And, and in, in sort of the language of sociology, so um, the sociologist Viviana Zelitzer writes a lot about how people think about money. And one of the things that she highlights is, is that people are constantly earmarking money. Um, right. So they're, they're sort of setting aside some money for some purposes and some money for other purposes. And those things have different meanings, even if it's just one big pile of cash. Right. That, that people, to your point, that money is not just this impersonal, impersonal, fungible kind of thing, that it constantly is given meaning by people. And I think the same is true in the context of, of tax paying, um, which is that even though we're maybe paying one check to, you know, on April 15th, for our federal income tax and that money is going into general revenue fund that's going to be funding lots of different things some of which we're really enthusiastic to support and some of which we might be more reticent right one of the questions for me is how people come to lift certain uses out of that right and either sort of symbolically earmark those things as being especially um, troubling or something that they're especially proud of. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the ways that that tax paying is more complicated than something like tithing or like charitable giving in a modern context, right? Where we can, we can say, I'm going to give this amount of money specifically to this purpose. And I have complete control over where I'm going to send my money where I know where that money is going to be used for. And so, you know, I think that that's a tension in, in, in general to how lots of Americans think about sort of, I'd rather pay less taxes and have more money to give to causes that I think are appropriate or to give to my church or to give to these um, charitable organizations or to use on my family in the way that I think is appropriate. Um, but, uh, but I think that a lot of what is at stake there is not just whether I have the freedom and autonomy to spend money in certain ways, but also whether I'm able to pinpoint exactly where my money is going in the end. And those two things, I think, intersect. And so I'd be curious if there are kind of examples in, in your work, right, from these, from these very different contexts where there's that um, ambiguity about where money is going that gives rise to some kinds of discomfort. Yeah. That's a great point. I think that's really important. I mean, I, I and part of it, I wonder part of it, if it's not simply a sort of religious versus kind of political, but if it's also an issue of kind of complexity of size of organization and, um, you know, sort of layers of bureaucracy. I mean, I can imagine people's concerns of even how they're using their money still sort of being a, like a, sm a small level uh, parallel to this where if there's a large sort of set of funds and one wants to be sure that the church is using it well. And we do see this in the early church of concerns about um, the right use of funds. I mean, the, the, the language around what a responsible shepherd, a responsible pastor uh, involved in the early church, a, a surprising amount of it was these very mundane sorts of practices of what it meant to be a good steward of the resources. Um, sort of right up there with what it meant to be a good steward of the souls of one's, one's flock. Um, so there are concerns about embezzlement. There are concerns about wastefulness. There are concerns about um, using money efficiently. And what's, what's interesting to me is how this is kind of drawn in parallel to God, that God is not a wasteful spender, that God uses resources um, effectively, even with this language of the kind of the prodigal son and the prodigal father, that God is abundantly generous. But at the same time, that generosity doesn't sort of fall on um, 
bare ground and, and weight and has some sort of waste, but that the, whatever God sort of sets out to accomplish with divine resources will come to fruition eventually. So there's this really interesting language of resourcefulness, of efficiency, of, of using resources well, whether they're cosmic, spiritual, or monetary. Um, that does that does crop up a little bit in terms of people's concern for the, the the church and other and other organizations using those resources, but yeah, this question of opacity, I think, and the and the the distrust of political authority, I think, are are absolutely qualitative distinctions that need to be maintained. That I think you're right to to highlight um, that are there. Another issue that that came to mind when you were talking that I think is fascinating is. And this relates a bit to anthropological conversations around the gift, but I think also connect with, with money, that uh, there's, there's often a perception in communities that you know, when you give a gift, that there's a bit of you that remains in that gift. There's a trace of you in that. Um, and that's part of why gifts need to be honored and circulated in certain ways, is that the spirit of the giver inheres somehow in the gift. Sometimes we can find this in money as well, right? That part of the, the desire for seeing it used the way we want is that there's something of, of us in that money that we're giving. And part of that is very understandable in the sense that, you know, you labored and you've expended your labor power in some sense to accrue this money. And so there's a way in which part of it represents your life essence that you've kind of given up to get this. And so if you're going to give it in certain directions, you want to see that little bit of you used in a way that you very specifically want, Right. Um, it, it's almost like there's a betrayal in a sense that a part of you is being taken and used in a way that you uh, don't approve of. And there's almost like a, almost a consent issue there. It's very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that just came to mind. And I think there's something there in that that's, that's really fascinating as well and, and relates to these, also these notions of kind of the spirituality of giving and of economies where um, there's a sense of the giver that remains in whether it's the gift, whether it's in coins and money that, that, dictates how the, the, the direction that 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 should circulate hmm. that's really i mean that's really helpful and interesting in part because i i have been grappling with this refrain that i hear over and over again in in the sort of field work in the historical the archival work i've been doing particularly on uh war tax resistors who are uh, people who are anti-war and refuse to pay taxes um out of concern that their money would would contribute to killing um and, but also to some degree, um, other groups where they talk about this idea that something's being done in their name, right? That, you know, I can't bear the idea that that's, that killing would be done in my name. Um, and, but this idea of what does that mean in my name? Is your name on the, you know, your name's on the bottom of a check, right? You've underwritten and subsidized something. Um, and, and so part of what I'm finding because this is, led me to do a lot of reading on the history of um, sort of how wartime taxes are navigated and raised is look at that there's this very kind of double-edged um, way that this idea that that again something is happening in my name works in the context of war where yes there's always been people who raise these kinds of moral concerns that killing is being carried out in their name but you know, numbers wise, the people, the number of Americans who, who hold those kinds of pacifist attitudes are relatively small, but almost the exact same vocabulary gets used by huge, huge numbers of Americans who say, you know, I want to support the boys overseas, right? I want to, I'm buying a Liberty bond or I'm going to, I'm proud to pay my taxes as the, 
Irvin Berlin um, song puts it, right? Because I want sort of in my name, you know, to be supporting directly the war effort. Um, and so in both cases, there's this kind of direct line drawn, right? In the sort of way that you're describing gifts, um, where a part of you is being contributed um, through your tax dollars or other kinds of financial contribution um, to a very specific thing. Um, and you both can receive kind of moral credit for that as an individual, right, through this sort of the reciprocity that you're describing. But for others, you, you also bear moral complicity in something if you view that as, as sinful or evil. And, you know, I sort of am seeing those as, as two sides of the same coin. Um, you can't actually claim one without opening yourself up to the other. Um, the mechanism is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I find that immensely fascinating. And I think there's some, I mean, I, I would imagine there's something there with, with that notion of a, a trace of oneself um, in one's resources. It's also interesting to think about, I mean, this is very explicit in, at least in the Christian tradition, that no doubt is informing many of these, these um, objectors, that what you do with your resources has a has a spiritual impact as well. Um, and so there's this very kind of clear, almost it, at least in scripture and in the early church's interpretation, there was a pretty clear kind of moral calculus that as you gave alms, as you got relinquished wealth, that a certain kind of treasure in heaven, a certain kind of credit was um, accruing to you in the spiritual realm. Um, and as Christians have kind of gone on and the church has gone on um, in centuries and had distance from that, it's kind of tried to spiritualize this the way and try to rationalize this in different ways because it seems so so crass, uh, at least to certain modern um, thinkers and, and ears. But there was something very much there and, and I think remains embedded in the Christian tradition that continues to influence, again, societies that are influenced by Christianity. This notion that 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 there is a moral impact and not just in terms of, um, you know, in the social realm, but in some sort of spiritual sense that w what you give has a kind of effect in terms of the, the, the ledgers in heaven, the moral balance sheets in heaven um, in some almost direct way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll just make one short point, which is that when we step back and we looked at sort of the past century or more of um, changes in, in the scope of American inequality, um, whether we're looking at wealth or income, the period in which there was the sort of lowest levels of inequality, the lowest sort of absolute difference between sort of the haves and the haves not have nots, um, also was the period where there was the sort of most extensive um, uh, taxation of the wealthy. Um, and sort of when we had very high marginal tax rates up for our tax bracket that both served as a way of regulating wealth of saying that people cannot sort of accumulate unlimited wealth at the top, um, but also collected revenue to some degree that funded a stronger social safety net. Um, and so it both lifted up the bottom and limited the top. This is controversial, whether or not we should go back to a moment where the sort of the top you know, people are essentially have a cap on their income at the high end of the of the spectrum is not, you know, uncontroversial. But it is to say that there is a stake to the tax system when it comes to inequality, that that to some degree, we've made choices in altering the tax system that has been one of the causes of ballooning inequality. Um, and so the more we can understand sort of how people think about taxes and how we can build up sort of consent for and support for a different kind of tax system, I think the more we're even able to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the thoughts that I had kind of segues from, from Ruthie's earlier points as well is that what's interesting is if you zoom out and look at some of the differences in historical moments around reasons for taxation or justifications for taxation and why one should pay, pay your taxes. So in the modern world, the, the primary justification is, is about that, that if you pay your taxes, this will come back to you in terms of government services, right? That the government is actually going to use this money to provide for the common good in some way. And then in moments of exception around wartime, maybe it's patriotism, right? Will be the, like another reason perhaps. So the, these, the, these come to mind to, uh, in my mind as some of the dominant reasons and, and Ruthie, you're more of an expert on this. So if you, if there are others you think are, are also prevalent today, uh, I'd be interested to hear those. What strikes me is looking at some of the, the moments in, in history, particularly in the ancient world where taxes were justified in, uh, on the basis of a notion of sovereignty that you just gave because the ruler was sovereign. Um, you gave because it was, it was obedience. You it gave because it was just the, d the due to this person in authority. Or you, you, this, there could be some sort of kind of divine justification. You gave because this person was installed by God or the gods, and so they were due this as well. Um, and so with this sort of shift away from notions of centralized sovereignty where, you know, it was about obeying and the sovereign had sort of just kind of ultimate control, at least over control over one's, um, you know, right to, right to uh, kill, so to speak, and, 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 and the life of those that are, that are under the sovereign's control to this more bio, biopolitical notion where there are states that are kind of nurturing the lives of citizens. We see this shift as well in the justification around taxation where now you pay taxes for the common good. And this relates to your question, Josh, I think in terms of where then, how do we think about our moral agency as people who are giving who are paying taxes, where now there's a, more of a sense of onus on um, kind of collective agency of those that are, that are paying taxes and those that are then responsible as democratic participants in a, in a kind of supposedly self-governed society in some sense, right? And so that's, that the notion of kind of agency and solution and responsibility has shifted, um, which then speaks to your question in terms of what does it mean to then um, make interventions and who's responsible for it ultimately? You know, is it, does it lie with the, the sovereign or the state or is it, is it among the people? Um, and so we see these calls, of course, for more broader forms of community organizing and collective action to try to realize that. Um, in certain ways, but this links, I think this links with so many different areas. I can think of calls for debt cancellation and for student loan forgiveness that are also tied up within how our tax money is being used, which then tie into these questions of collective action around inequality. Um, so it's, it's deeply, it's all deeply implicated in very, I think very interesting ways. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, engaging in this conversation. It's been very interesting. And during a time when we're all kind of hunkered down, at least for me, it was very life-giving to be in conversation with uh, two people who have such interesting ideas. So thanks, both of you. Thank you so much for organizing this. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great conversation.